Okay, I think if I were to mention the name Albert Einstein, like 100% of you in this room would know he, who he is, correct? Right, E equals MC squared, it's a no-brainer. But very few people know about Albert Einstein's first wife. Her name was Mileva Marig, and she was a small, uh, small in stature, small in personality, slightly disabled, but really brilliant woman. And the two of them met actually at university. She was one of only, um, I think at the time she was the fourth woman enrolled in the university that he attended, and she kept her own. She was known for her brilliance. She made better grades than any man in her, her class, and she and Albert would study together. That's how they fell in love. Um, however, despite her grades, she did not pass her oral exams, and she never got her degree. Um, no one knows why. Even so, though, she made marvelous contributions to science. She and Albert used to stay up late into the night studying arguing, debating. Um, he wrote once that she was the whole, she was the only one who could keep him focused, and she was the only one who could do all his math. <laughs> and in his letters at the time, the letters that they wrote between the two of them when they were separated, he wrote of our papers, our ideas, and even our theory of relativity. Uh, but nobody actually knows how, how much she contributed to his work. We only know that when they divorced, they did divorce in 1919, she demanded the stipulation that if he ever received a Nobel Prize, she would get to keep the prize money. And he conceded that, right? He did get the Nobel Prize, and he did give her the money. But the true extent of Maleva's contributions are unknown. And she actually remained largely forgotten until the 1990s when her, the letters between them were discovered. So as a church, we are kind of near the beginning of a series called Following the Footsteps. We're discussing the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're still so early into this that Abraham's name is still Abram. And just like in the story of Einstein and Mileva, we're about to see that there were other significant players at work here, in fact, two women who, at this point in the story, are still unseen and in danger of being forgotten. Would you open up your Bibles to Genesis 16, 1 through 7? Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The word of the Lord. And from our perspective, ooh, this story is appalling, is it not? Like, let's call out, let's just call out some of the things that are most jarring, right? Slavery. The ESV translation here uses the word servant, and I can see why. Because as Americans, we've got a different concept of slavery, that this wasn't chattel slavery, this wasn't race-driven, but we've got to call it what it was. It was slavery. Hagar didn't have a choice. She was a member of the household without power, without agency, even her, over her own body. The other equally appalling thing to me is this idea of bigamy, right? One man, two wives. That's unimaginable. Sarah gives Hagar to her husband in order to produce an heir. And that's quite frankly ugly and uncomfortable. And then our, our um, I guess, anti-hero of the story saying to Sarai, your servant's in your power. Do to her as your please, abuse. He's condoning abuse. And, and Sarah does it. She abuses. And these are the people whose footsteps of faith we're supposed to follow. There's nothing in the story in Abram or Sarai that we can condone. They're abusive, dismissive of another person made in God's image. But we need to examine them closely. This happened 4,000 years ago in another place, in another culture, a culture prone to sins other than the ones our culture is prone to. And I want to examine their experiences to see how they arrived at this place. Okay, so let's examine together the experiences of the three primary characters in this story and see what the Holy Spirit has to offer to us. Start with Abram. Because Abram was the head of the household, responsible for the well-being of everyone in his family, his servants, his workers, his flocks. He would have been lord and master, provider, defender, manager, judge, general. To be the firstborn son in this era was a privilege, but one that came with immense responsibility. Um, one of his greatest responsibilities actually was to produce an heir so that he could continue to sustain this family system. And weeks ago, we, we'd already learned that he risked this by marrying, perhaps intentionally, a barren woman, Sarai. He had no direct descendant, yet God called him out of his homeland and promised to make him into a great nation, promised to bless all peoples of the earth through him. I want to read this again because it is so extraordinary. Um, Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot 
went with him. And one key thing that I want you to notice there is that at the end, Lot went with him. When Abram left, he brought along with him an heir, his nephew. Abram had a plan B. Abram brought someone with him who could take his place and, and manage the family after he passed. However, if you remember a couple weeks ago, when Abram went to Egypt and convinced Sarai to say that she was his sister in order to protect his own life, he received an immense dowry from Pharaoh and left, left Egypt so wealthy that now the land couldn't bear both his flocks and Lot's. The land could not handle their wealth, and he had to send Lot away. He sent his heir away. His plan B was gone. He's going to have to rely now on the Lord. Or is he? <laughs> because last week we read Genesis uh, 15 2. The Lord came and reiterated the promise, but Abram responded. Do we have this? Yeah. Lord God, what can you give me? What does it matter? Since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This was plan C. He had like his chief servant, his steward, who now was going to be his heir. But again, the Lord responds saying, a child of your own body will be your heir. It's not going to be Lot. It's not going to be Eliezer. This will be a child from your own body. So where does that leave us? If we look at it logically, especially from the cultural perspective of the day, Abram is, is, is promised descendants from his own body. Abram's wife is not able to have children. Therefore, another child is going, or another woman is going to have to bear this child. So, so when his wife comes to him with this idea of him taking her slave, again, a culturally appropriate solution, he concedes. This was a culture of polygamy, not God's design, but just a cultural fact. So Abram takes charge of God's promise himself. And Hagar conceives, and I just, I wonder what went through Abram's mind. Is it joy? Is it gratitude? That's what I would imagine, like, I've been longing for a child for so long, and now, here he is. He might have given prayers of rich thanksgiving. So, I can't fathom, I just gotta say, I can't fathom what's wrong with him. Why, when Sarai comes and says, you know, this, you did this to me, why does he say, this, this woman is yours, do with her what you want? Why isn't he willing to protect his child? Why isn't he willing to protect the one that he has been asking for? Maybe he wanted peace and quiet. Maybe he was sick of bickering. 
Maybe something in him knew that this was the wrong solution all along. But he still had a responsibility to care for those underneath him, and, and he shirked that responsibility. And God saw. So let's talk about Sarai, the one whose pain hardened her. Sarai is actually a great mystery at this point in the story. Do you know in this whole story of Abram, we haven't heard one word from her, not one. Even when Abram asked her to pretend that she was his sister, we have no record of her response. All we know is that she was Abram's wife, that she was beautiful, and that she was barren. What a way to be remembered. I, I mean, to be honest, Matt and I had two years where we were told that we couldn't have children, and I can actually recall the feeling now, like that pain was so great that every time I saw a baby or a pregnant woman, I kind of felt like I was going to vomit up my soul in front of everyone. It's a visceral, ugly pain. I know some of us in this room know that pain. And guys, I don't want to minimize that, but 4,000 years ago, to be a woman, your only significance was in caring children. She was rich. She was beautiful. She was the wife of Abram, but she was barren. Barrenness meant loss of significance. It left her without purpose, fodder for gossip and ridicule. And in that culture... Well, I actually think this lie persists today. In that culture, if a woman couldn't bear children, they believed it was because she'd been cursed by the gods. We, we actually see it in Sarai's response in verse 2. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She blames it on God, and, and why wouldn't she? You guys, Abram has spoken to God four times at this point and never mentioned Sarai, not once. Not once. What must, have it, what must it have felt like to be like ripped from her community, wandering in the wilderness, chucked into Pharaoh's household, pulled back out, all the while having your husband receive grandiose promises from a God who never mentions you? and whose plans clearly exclude you. Sarai knows that if these promises to Abram are going to come true, it's going to be without her. She sees Abram as blessed, and she sees herself as cursed. And each new chapter in this story is like rubbing salt in her deepest wound. And so, again, very practically, I think she comes up with a solution. Her own servant will bear a child for her, allowing Sarai to maintain dignity and control and regain some significance. But I don't know if she knew how deep this wound was. 
Like, did she really, truly believe she could put this plan into action and receive Hagar's child with joy? Maybe. Maybe she did think she could. Adoption is a beautiful thing, but not like this. Not with oppression and scheming. And then, oh, after Hagar's pregnant, Hagar, her servant, inflicts the same wound upon her, the wound of insignificance. She belittles her again. And it seems like Sarai's uh, self-controlled facade snaps. She yells at her husband, may the wrong done to me be on you. And it sounds like she's blaming Abram. She, she may be. But it might actually be worse than that. Remember that blessing from God? Those who curse you, I will curse. She might have been trying to call down God's curse on Hagar. Guys, maybe even hoping that she would miscarry. And Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and she fled for her, from her. The one whose pain hardened her lashed out. And God saw. Hagar, Hagar is the heart-wrenching victim of this story. But just like every victim, she's not perfect either. Let's give her some context. She was likely brought out of Egypt with Sarai from, from Pharaoh's household. She may have even served Sarai there in the household of Pharaoh. And can you imagine what that might have been like to be in Egypt in 2000 BC, the height of the, the pyramids and the temples and the flooding Nile bringing fertility and food and, and lavish celebration. And then, and then she leaves to go to the wilderness with a wandering nomad and serve his wife. And, and Matt actually said, my husband actually said, it, it might have been like going from Bellevue to Roy. We love you, Roy. But only two generations later, in the time of Jacob, the time of Joseph, um, we hear in the Bible that the Egyptians despised shepherds. So she might have already been despising where she was. That's a possibility. And what must her life have been like as a nomad? The journeying, the serving, the hot, dusty earth far away from the lush Nile. What could have gone through her mind? I wonder if she marveled at Abram not taking another wife because Sarai was, was barren. I wonder... I wonder if she envied Sarai's beauty. We hear no mention of Hagar's appearance. In fact, she's nearly invisible. If you look back in the chapter, Hagar, Hagar's name isn't mentioned once by Abram or Sarai. It's my servant. Take my servant. She's not even named there. She's alone in the world, far from home, and a slave without agency, even her, over her own body. And she seems tough, but she's fragile, both in her situation and in her soul. 
So socially, burying Abram's child would be a step up from her, for her. That should have guaranteed her protection. It should have given her some status. But when she became pregnant, she erred, you guys, in a dangerous way. In a dangerous way. She pressed on Sarai's deepest wound. And those who are oppressed can't make the same kind of errors as those who are in privilege. It might have just been a simple mistake for someone else, but not for Hagar. It nearly cost her her life. Sarah, Sarai, wounded and bitter, responded with violence and abused her. And Sarai, Hagar, Hagar, fled into the wilderness, likely fearing for her child's life. And God saw that too. The story is so sobering. These three very real people draw us into their story with feelings that are acutely recognizable. How many of us have waited for years on God? And how many of us have like pushed forward trying to make our own way? How many of us have been super aware of our own blessings and privilege and yet we carried a deep, deep ache? How many of us have watched God bless other people? Envious, crying out, when will it be my turn? Will it ever be my turn? Or how many of us in this room are Hagars? Victims, strong maybe, but victims, unseen and unknown. And oh, Abram and Sarai had the chance to fulfill God's blessing and bless a member of the nations of the world. And they did not. Instead, they harmed. I've got a quote for us um, from one of our commentators. The first sobering lesson is that the very community of promise and hope of redemption and liberation, the community of Abram and Sarai is capable of becoming a community of oppression. Indeed, it can become so in seeking to cooperate with God, in moving toward the fulfillment of the promise and the hope held out to it. And we've seen this, haven't we? The church has wounded others, working to further the kingdom of God. And may the Lord have mercy on us. Guys, God just didn't just see the story of Hagar. He acted. Open your Bibles again to Genesis 16, 7, to hear the second half of this story. Imagine Hagar at this point, hot and weary, pregnant, bruised alone, her face tear-stained and dusty, stumbling up to a spring in the wilderness and gulping water. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Hagar at this moment actually can't offer either one of those questions. 
She's unable to answer for her past or her future because she came from insignificance, from a master and mistress who didn't even speak her name. She's headed in the direction of Egypt, but it's through the wilderness, and she's not going to be able to make it on her own. If you notice, all she answers for is the present. I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And then the angel of the Lord says to her the unthinkable, return to your mistress and submit to her. And Hagar can't speak. She doesn't answer. I'm sure her mind is racing from the angel's next words. We can infer that she's thinking something like, I cannot go back. My child and I will perish from the abuse. But the angel of the Lord says to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. Her child will live. Her child's going to survive and be granted the same promise made to Abram. Will this child be Abram's heir? But Hagar still doesn't speak. Why is she holding back? Like what fears are in her heart that can't make, her, make their way to her mouth? Look at what he says next. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction, and he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. (laughs) This opened her mouth. This opened her mouth. Actually, will you go back? Let's talk about why. Um... Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, not a daughter. This child isn't going to be a concubine. She's not going to be a maidservant. You shall call his name Ishmael. The Lord hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. (laughs) That sounds like an insult. Sounds like her kid's going to be a jackass. But, so I did a little digging on that. (laughs) Don't we all wish the Lord would warn us about our kids' personality before they were born? (laughs) I think think a, a comparison that would read better for us would be like a wild horse. Your son's going to be a man who is independent and free. He's going to be free. He's not going to be enslaved. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He may be stubborn, but if people come after him, like Sarai came after you, he's going to be able to defend himself, to stand up for himself. And everyone's, uh, and he shall dwell over against all his kingdom. That, that, that over against different. Translations really translate that differently. Those words, probably depending on how they feel about Ishmael and his heirs, because that over against can actually mean near or in the presence of. The idea being here, maybe Ishmael won't be Abram's heir. He won't have to be in charge of Abram's family. 
but he will choose to be near them. He won't be far from them. He'll he'll be free of them, but he'll be close. And that's something that we can actually see happens later in the book of Genesis. You guys, the angel spoke with this to the cries of Hagar's heart, and in doing so, he revealed himself to her. This is the moment Hagar realizes that she's standing on holy ground. This isn't just any angel. This is God himself present with her. God came to her and he called her by name. In this story up to this point, he'd only appeared to Abram. The one who was chosen, the one with the power and the money and the influence. And now he's appearing to a slave whose mistress and master didn't even call her by her name. Hagar finds her voice. So she, next slide, so she called on the name of the Lord. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Elroy. For she said, truly here, I've seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. The living God who sees me. So while Abram and Sarai, those chosen ones of God, were bickering and striving Struggling, lashing out, abusing, trying to work out God's promise for themselves. Where does God show up? He shows up to Hagar. I would want him to show up, or I would think he would show up to Abram and say, knock it off. Or to Sarai and say, stop with the oppression. You know, stop with the slavery. But... The greatest treasure of God is his presence. In his presence, there's comfort and peace and fullness of joy and strength to carry on in the journey. And Hagar was so moved that she did something no one had done in the Bible to this point, not Adam or Eve, Cain or Abel, Noah or even Abram. She names God. And to name was to give significance. To name was to say, I see you. I know you. It's a bold, bold move. And that's what the presence of God can do. In fact, it strengthened her to go back to Hagar or to Sarai and to bear that son. In the presence of the Lord, Hagar moved from insignificance to significance, from fear to courage and futurelessness, no future to a promise of generations. And it would be so easy to end it here, saying, go, seek the Lord's presence. But that's not, that's not what happened. Hagar wasn't seeking God. She was fleeing from pain. God sought her out. (sighs) 
God met her. God called her by name. And this is who God is. He's the one who seeks people out for his own. And it's not just this story in scripture. He does it over and over and over again. Jesus, who is the exact same God of the Old Testament, right? They are the same God. Jesus went out of his way to a well in the middle of a community that was supposed to be forbidden to the Jews, Samaria, plopped himself by a well and had a conversation with another woman, a woman who was hiding because of shame, hiding because of sin, maybe even involuntary sin. She, uh, he says that she, he calls out her past, right? That she had five husbands, and one of the reasons that could have been is maybe she was infertile. Maybe she was barren. We don't know. We don't know. We don't even know her name. But Jesus saw her, and he spoke to her the deepest desires of her heart to know God. John 4, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Guys, our God is seeking. He sought out Hagar. He sought out the woman at the well. And he's still seeking people out today. You are here today because God is seeking you out. And it's not just us. He's seeking out the people that the religious establishment may not. He's seeking the people out on the street. He is seeking out the elderly. He's seeking out those who are lonely, who are hidden, whose lives are filled with shame. He's seeking out, and he's doing it in a powerful way, he's seeking out members of the LGBTQ community. He's seeking out people all over the world. The stories coming from Iran are marvelous. Guys, we serve a God who seeks. Guys, we have a member of our own community here who has a story about how God saw her and sought her out. And I've asked her to come share with us. But here's the deal. This story contains some really sensitive elements that we don't want broadcast or recorded. So we're actually going to pause the live stream, I'm sorry, for those of you at home, maybe get a cup of coffee or, or spend some time in reflection, and we'll be back in a few moments.
us out. We have a God who's seeking you out. And we have a God who's seeking out people from every nation, tribe, tongue, every corner and doorpost in Olympia, every forgotten trailer park. My heart's cry, if I were to give you anything to go away from this, this sermon with, it's, it's this idea that our God is the God who sees, and he is the God who seeks. And I'd love, love for you to reflect on what you would name God, given the opportunity. What, what has God done for you? Because reflecting on our own stories can, and hearing the stories of others can just expand the vision of who this God is. Will you pray with me? Elroy, Lord God, who sees, who seeks us out. Lord, I pray for each person in this room, for this body of reality. Lord, we confess the times we've limited you. You will not be limited. Open up our eyes. Give us a vision of who you are. Help us to hear the stories of people around us. Help us to trust that sometimes your promises take years. But you are faithful and you are good. And you are worthy of our praise, Lord. Amen.